The highlight of my track career came during my first year of college. I know it doesn't look like it now. In fact, some of the aches and pains I face are remnants of those days when I was younger. I attended a small college north of Los Angeles in a place called Newhall called Los Angeles Baptist College. Which now it's called the Master's College. And I had a partial scholarship for track and for soccer. And for anybody that says that soccer is not a contact sport, you haven't played it very long. That's thus my joints and knees and everything else are never fully recovered from those years. I ran the 100-yard dash and the 220 and the 440-yard dash. Now, most of you younger people don't remember what a 100-yard dash was. That's what they used to call, now they call it 100 meter, 200 meter, and the 400 meter. Back in my day, they didn't have those. At the uh, Olympic level they did, but at the college levels we still ran those. And I ran the anchor leg for the 440 and the 880 relays on top of the other races that I would run. Our track team at this small school was invited to attend an invitational track meet hosted by some of the big schools in Los Angeles. Present were Biola University, Azusa Pacific, UC Riverside, Chapman University, UC San Diego, and other schools that were easily, in most cases, 10 times our size. We did not have enough runners to run all the races, so we couldn't put a full-scale track team up. So we signed up for the 440-880 relays, and I ran a couple of the dashes. And the irony was this. The small college had some very fast runners for our size. Two of us could run the 100-yard dash in under 10 seconds, and the other two were low 10s. So that's pretty fast for a track team. And I remember well going to my position to receive the baton. As the gun fired, I watched as our runners held their own against the big guys. We held, held on even for the first leg of the race. We were, it was almost tied when they released baton on the first leg. They lost a few feet on the second leg and a little more on the third leg. As the baton was handed to me, we were tied for third place out of eight teams. The lead runner was out ahead, and I ran my heart out, and by the time I had reached the finish line, I had nudged ahead of the lead runner, and we took first place. It was exciting when we did that. But it also, our win created a controversy, a storm of controversy. They were asking, who are these guys? Where did they even come from? We were unknown in the whole thing. No one had heard of us. No one had factored us as being a threat where all these other teams were factoring, well, if we do this, this, and this, uh, we will get this. And we were just this kind of thing that slid under the radar here, and they had no idea, and it kind of threw things off for them. The big rivalries were angry at us because we ruined their numbers and humiliated their top guys. One protested that we had no right to be there, if that's all we're going to do. When we ran the 880, we won again. Two races, first place. And the whole field was buzzing about the small, unknown school beating the top contenders of the area. And the following day at chapel, the coach got up and showed our trophies to the crowd and described our surprising victory because here we were this obscure little college and nestled in the foothills of California. And the whole auditorium cheered and we celebrated. And I'll never forget that experience. And it felt great, like I could take on the world. And for a brief moment of time, I felt I, I was a star, but I knew very well that it could not have happened without my teammates. Every sports team has its stars. John Elway's, 
Wayne Gretzky's, Michael Jordan's. They're the reason fans come to watch the games and they often find themselves at the center of the spotlight overcome with adulation. And the fans may not grasp it, but the players themselves understand one basic truth about team sports. Stars wouldn't be stars without the support of the team. The winning quarterback can't win without the defenders. And I certainly understood that in my own victory. Every year around Christmas time, Miami Dolphins quarterback Don Marino used to do the commercial for isotomer gloves. I still remember it years ago. And the, the phrase that they used was, take care of the hands that take care of you. And the point of the commercial, beyond selling gloves, of course, is that Don Marino couldn't have been able to pull off all the incredible feats as a quarterback without the assistance of his front line. And that's because even though the Stars get much of the glory, football is a team sport. It's not just about the quarterback. It's this way in other areas of life. Whenever movie stars get an Oscar, you, you, the script is almost predictable. They give the same basic speech. I would like to thank all the people who helped me to make this night possible. My agent, my manager, my director, my producer, the writers, the members of the cast, and the list goes on of all, on and on of different people they might include. And that's because it's the same in Hollywood as it is in business or sports or any other areas of life. It requires a great deal of effort on the part of many people to make one person deceive. You see, the stars could not be stars unless all the other other people were doing their jobs well. On July 20th, 1969, I still remember it as a young boy, not even just into junior high years, and I remember being at my aunt's house in Virginia, Blackwater, Virginia, watching the black and white TV and watching Neil Armstrong first walk on the moon. He was the focus of attention for the entire planet. And today, whenever the Apollo voyage to the moon is discussed, Neil Armstrong's name is the one that everybody remembers. And what often isn't remembered, however, is the fact that the Apollo expedition took place due to a large, very large committed team of individuals sacrificed day and night to make it happen. And we all remember his famous phrase, one small step for man, one giant step for mankind. He may have gotten all the glory, but he will be the first to tell you that it was a team effort. That's the way it is in every area of life. Life is a team sport. God means for us to work together to be successful and to be happy. One person cannot do it alone. It's the same way at church. Church is a team sport. In order to do the work that God has called us to do, we must work together as a team. God intended for the church to operate as a team. The old model is that the church hires a professional the minister, the pastor, or maybe a group of professionals to do the work of the ministry, and we expect them to do it. And then we are the recipients of their ministry. But that's not the biblical model. That's not the model that caused the explosive growth of the New Testament church. The Bible tells us of God's method in Ephesians 1, 4-11, and we'll look further at it next week, but I want to give the picture where we're leading with today's passage. It says, It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. You see, God's plan for evangelism is teamwork, but it's not always easy for us. A survey among missionaries revealed that their number one obstacle on the mission field was not loneliness, was not culture shock, 
It was not finances, as one might expect. The number one problem that missionaries face, according to missionaries, is the inability to get along with other missionaries. It's the number one reason. I've known missions that have left, left the mission field because they just couldn't get along with everyone else. They left family and friends and financial security, and you would think they would have no difficulty getting along, but that's not the case. In fact, the administrator of a missions organization once told me that he sends missionaries out only in groups of, of two or four, but never three. His organization learned that from experience that when three missionaries work out together, inevitably one feels like he's getting picked on by the others. These are the missionaries devoted to God to serve him. You see, evangelism, church growth, like all of life, is a team sport. To succeed as a church and as individuals, we must develop a team player mentality. In Ephesians 4, Paul shows us how to do this. He says this, chapter 4 begins a major transition in the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians can be easily divided into two major sections, chapter 1 to 3 and chapters 4 to 6. The first three chapters focus on doctrine or the principles for the church that underlie everything else. The next three chapters focus on the duty or the practice of our faith. And Paul is telling us in verse 1 that we should live a life worthy of the calling that we have received. This calling is described for us in the first three chapters. We have been saved through faith. We've been reconciled to God together as Jew and Gentile to represent him and bring glory to him. We are his and we should live like it. Paul now will explain what's that look like. How should we live that out in light of our calling? Notice what he says, starting at verse 1 of Ephesians 4. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of calling you have received. Now, there's that word, therefore, that goes, or there, that says, goes back to the context. He goes on, he says, Be completely humble and gentle and be patient, bearing one another in love. Make every effort to keep unity in the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. I want today to focus on verses 2 or 3. It says, Be completely humble, gentle, be patient, bearing one another in love. Three key words in this passage are the basis for developing an attitude of a team player. Paul said, be humble, be gentle, be patient. Today we're going to look more closely at these three attitudes and consider how we can further develop them in our own lives. We will address his question, what attitudes are required for the church to do its work? First of all, Paul said, be humble. So that means have an attitude that says, the team is more important than me. It's not about me. When Lou Holtz began his coaching career at the University of Minnesota, he gave every player on his team a t-shirt and printed across the chest in large, bold letters were the words, team. And below team in tiny letters were the word, me. And Holtz told his team this. He said, this t-shirt serves to remind you that the team is more important than you are and you should always put the team above you. So that involves several things. First of all, note the contrast laid out in verse two, the first two verses of chapter four. It can be summarized as high position, low attitude. There's an important question we should ask ourselves. Am I willing to put the team above me? 
Am I willing to take low-profile, low-glamour jobs that benefits others more than me? Because every role is important for the big picture. We also see that humility is built on the awareness of Christ. A, a well-known Greek scholar of years past does a study of the word humility, and he basically brings it to light with these words. Humility is a loneliness of mind which comes from a true estimate of ourselves. Humility is built on the awareness of Christ. In the past, they have served churches where certain members expected to gain certain offices. They thought, well, look at me. I deserve to be in a prestigious disposition, regardless of their ability to do the job. I've seen musicians unwilling to share musical responsibilities or teachers unwilling to give others a chance to teach or leaders who insisted on being in control of areas that they knew very little about and did not have the spiritual maturity and awareness to do the job well. And Obviously, these were not team players, and the churches suffered as a result. Paul said this in Philippians 2.3, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Every baseball fan remembers a man named Kurt Gibson. He had a game-winning home run in the first game of the 1988 World Series. Kirk was more than a star. However, he was the ultimate player. His coach, Tommy Lasorda, who used to coach the L.A. Dodgers, he once said that the great things about having him on his team was that Kirk was willing to do anything to win. He would bunt, sacrifice, walk, whatever, because the team's win-lose record was always more important than his batting average or what he looked like. That's an attitude of a team player. When you enter a room, your attitude says one of two things when you enter. One of them can be, here I am, look at me, I'm important. Or there's another that says, there you are. One is proud, the other is humble. Paul encourages us in verse 2, be completely humble. A team player projects a there you are attitude because his attitude is that the team is more important than me. And secondly, Paul said, be gentle. That means having an attitude that says, my job is to encourage others. And that involves several things. We need to celebrate the victories. When Don Chula first began coaching the Miami Dolphins, they were ranked among the bottom of the American Football Conference. And he showed his new Dolphin team the film of the previous season championship team, which was then the Baltimore Colts. And he told the Dolphin players to focus not on the play, but what happened after the play. And the players helped each other up. They gave high-five one another. They shouted encouragement to one another. In contrast, he showed the Dolphin players their film from the previous season. And these elements were missing. He encouraged his players to get in the habit of encouraging one another on the field because that's how champions play. They encourage each other. Don Shula went on to become the winningest coach in the history of what was later the NFL. Another thing to note regarding our point is that we need to set goals to overcome failures. There's a man named Jim from San Diego. He owns a software business, and he was shocked one day when an incompetent employee approached him asking for a raise. And of course, as far as most employees are concerned, there was never a good time to ask for a raise. 
But his request couldn't have come at a worse time. Jim was working over 18-hour days. They were financially struggling. And this particular employee was habitually late and had recently blown a key assignment, certainly not one who qualified for what he was asking. In fact, Jim had decided earlier that he would have to let him go. He was just waiting for the right time to do it. When he came in asking for a raise, Jim was tempted to laugh in his face and to chase him out of the office with a stick. However, he realized there might be a better way to handle the situation. So he sat down with the employee. He looked him in the eye and he said, I'm afraid you haven't yet earned a raise. In fact, your performance has been below expectations, but let's talk about what you can do to make it possible to be paid more. And if you will strengthen your performance in a few areas, I will pay you what you are asking. And together they outlined a detailed job description for the incompetent employee, a job description that included punctuality as well as increased responsibilities. And within a few weeks, he had met the conditions and he earned his pay increase. It was Jim's decision to be gentle that helped this employee improve their performance. And as a result, they both became better team players. I heard a saying once, it's true a man doesn't live by bread alone. Sometimes he needs buttering up. That's the idea here. We all do. That's why Paul challenges us to treat one another with gentleness. Being gentle with one another doesn't mean being weak or wimpy. It means treating others with an attitude that says your feelings matter. You're important to me. And the word gentle or meek in the Greek has, was used to describing a high-spirited horse. You didn't want to take away the spirit of the horse. You wanted to direct it in the right way. It's intended to increase the value of the horse to the owner to take that energy and take that focus of the horse and direct it so it can be productive. But we also need to note this, is that when you do correct, you must do it gently. The fact is, when people work together as a team, there are times when you have to correct one another. That's hard to do sometimes. It's inevitable because we're all human and we're all going to make mistakes. It's important, though, that when it happens that we go about it gently. And the purpose of correction is to inspire the person to do better, not to humiliate or degrade. And when someone loses, whether they're struggling at home or at work, that is the time they most need encouragement. As a team player, your job is to be gentle, to offer them encouragement. Millions of fans... Some of you remember Greg Norman, a, a well-known golfer. Millions of fans watched as Greg Norman blew a lead in the Masters Golf Tournament in the spring of 1995, losing to Nick Faldo. And after the debacle, the golf star says he experienced the most touching few days of my life. People from all over the world contacted him with words of encouragement. He received four times as much mail as when he won the British Open in 1993. The experience changed his life. It changed his attitude toward people. He said this, There's no need for me to be cynical anymore. I never thought I could reach out and touch people like that. And the extraordinary thing is, I did it by losing. See, life is a team sport. And our job is to encourage everyone on the team. And when they get a hit and when they strike out with the bases loaded, Paul said, therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are doing. Thirdly, Paul said, be patient. That means having an attitude that says, I will not give up on anyone. 
want you to think about the word patient for a little bit. Patient implies the final result will be good even if it takes a very long time. It means it's not a lost cause. Sometimes we want to give up on people and sometimes we have a great justification for it, but patient says, I'm not giving up. When I was a kid, I would say to my mother, I can't wait until the day that I can drive a car. And she said, be patient, someday you will be able to. And it did come. I'm far on the other side of it now. But I remember I had to wait a whole day to get my license in California, the Walnut Creek Department of Motor Vehicles. I took the test on Monday. My birthday was on a Sunday. I had to wait a whole day to get my license. That was an eternity to get it. I got it, and I passed it, and I aced it because, man, was I ready for that test. I, I mastered it. My mom was good with that. But on the other hand, when I would say, you know, what I really want to get someday is a motorcycle, and she would say, forget it. It's never going to happen. Not under my roof. And when it came to a motorcycle, she never told me to be patient because patience wouldn't have done me any good because I wasn't getting it, not living with her. As far as she was concerned, my hope of riding a motorcycle was a lost cause. And years later, when my brother-in-law died from a motorcycle accident, she made sure I understood. You remember me telling you never get a motorcycle? This is why. But we also see that no person should be treated as a lost cause. Paul tells us to be patient with one another for the simple reason that no person is a lost cause. We are to keep believing in them, keep encouraging them until they come around. That doesn't mean being an enabler. That doesn't mean ignoring their weaknesses and doing the, the wrongs that they do. But you can always have hope that God will transform and something will change and you want to be a positive to that end. Paul expressed the same attitude in the book of Philippians. He says, I am confident of this that he who began a work in you will carry it on to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. You see, God is still working in us to be more and more like Christ. And boy, is he patient, because we have a long way to go. When you read the Gospels, it doesn't take to realize how completely fallible the disciples of Jesus were. James and John were overly ambitious John was short-tempered. Son of thunder, he was called. And we read accounts of him when in, in the early church where he, his anger came forth. James was ambitious, wanted to be first. Remember, who will be first in my kingdom? There was a debate over that. Peter was impulsive. He was, had foot and mouth disease. He was always saying things that would get him in trouble. Simon the Zealot was impatient. And all the others uh, at one time or another showed cowardice or lack of faith or jealousy and spiritual thick-headedness. Think of Thomas, became known as Doubting Thomas. And yet Jesus kept all of them, with the obvious ex exception of Judas, who betrayed Christ and killed himself and never repented before that happened. But in spite of their faults, these men eventually were instrumental in changing the world. These were not perfect men that Jesus chose. The world was transformed through their ministry. Over the course of a few years, they went from being weak and afraid to being strong and bold. After the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they were energized, and they took the gospel of, to, of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth, and in the process, they were all martyred, except for John, who was tortured and exiled on the island of Patmos. 
Now, what would have happened if Jesus had given up on them in the early days? What if he had done what we tend to do of just saying, you're not up to snuff here, guy? Who would have fulfilled the Great Commission had he done that? Who would have carried out the work that he began and that changed the whole world? See, Jesus refused to give up on his disciples in spite of their mis- all of their mistakes because he knew that eventually they would become the men that they were capable of being, and he saw them in terms of their potential, not their past and their weaknesses. And as history proves, Jesus' patience paid off. If God refuses to give up on others, what right do we have to give up on others? By showing patience to your family, to your coworkers, to your fellow church members who are saying, I believe in you. I believe in what God can do in your life. I believe that your shortcomings are short-term, and if you can overlook mine for a little while longer, I will overlook yours. Because, see, that's what the church is comprised of. Imperfect people, flawed people, called to do together God's work. And we each have to be gentle, patient, and humble with each other. It's hard to work as a team when you have to listen to a bunch of honking criticism. Nobody's motivated by somebody pointing out our weaknesses because half the time we already know ourselves. We need to be patient with the other players on our team. But notice verse 3. We are to forbear one another in love. And he says that you should strive to keep unity on the team. Verses 4 to 6 talk to that issue. It tells us that we are one body. This provides the basis for us to walk in unity. Paul spent three years to make this point. Unity ceases when we deny all the first three points. Gentleness, patience, humility. There's a story about a country fair that held a horse pulling contest to see whose horse could pull the most weight. And the second place winner pulled a sled of 3,500 pounds. This first place winner pulled a sled of 4,000 pounds. And the administrators of the contest tried to do something different to make a point. They attached both horses to a sled to see what they could do and combined the horses pulled almost 10,000 pounds of weight. You see, that's true in all areas of life. Together we can do far more than we can do as individuals in life, at home, in the church. And we must develop an attitude that says, this is a team sport and I'm going to be a team player. This morning we looked at three key words in this passage that are the basis for developing an attitude as a team player. Paul says, be humble, be gentle, be patient. You see, I learned as a young man in college that winning a relay race was a wonderful joy, but it's not a one-man show. It's a team effort. Most things that really matter in life require the effort and the involvement of others in our lives. It is so it is with spiritual growth and with church growth. All of us need humility and gentleness and patience. Some things to take away from this. Number one, God never intended for you to make your spiritual journey alone. Spiritual maturity happens in the context of community. In other words, for us to work in community or, or as a team, we need humility, we need gentleness, and we need patience. And this is one of the reasons that COVID has created a thing because we, we were not able to meet for a period of time and we need, need to meet for those times together to help shape each other and encourage each other. We also learned that unity is essential for growth in the church. Unity comes from sharing key values, purposes, and goals in common. 
that we're in in the same right. We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We share the, uh, the same purposes, the same God. And if unity is absent, then we have the wrong attitudes or conflicting purposes or values or goals. Therefore, these must be reconciled before unity can proceed. And Paul will address what some of those things are in next week's sermon. But the point is we must work as a team if we expect to have an impact on our community and the world. Everybody in this room that is part of this church is an important part of helping us to do the work that God has called us to do. In Moorhead, Minnesota, the home of Concordia College, it lies across the state line from Fargo, North Dakota, which is a very big part of the country, especially during the winter years, not unlike what we face here. And all year, the community anticipates Concordia's annual Christmas concert. And each December, a huge choir with a full orchestra gives a musical performance in the concert hall at the college. And every year, the people in the community create a unique background for the concert. The same thing every year, a 100 by 50 foot mosaic. It's huge. And beginning in the summer, about six months before the concert, the community designs a new mosaic. They rent an empty building, and the painting begins. Hundreds of people, from junior high schoolers to senior citizens, paint the mosaic. They paint by number on a large-scale design that has thousands of tiny pieces. And day after day, and month after month, one little painted piece at a time, the picture on the mosaic gradually takes place. And when everyone has finished painting, an artist goes over the entire creation, perfecting the final work, doing the final touches up, and the mosaic is completed, they place it behind the choir. It has the appearance of an enormous, beautiful stained glass window. And the weekend of the concert, those people who helped paint arrive early along with their friends and neighbors. And throughout the building, you hear people whispering, see that little green spot below the camel's foot? I painted that. They all participated in making this beautiful work of art. And every year in the middle of the summer in Moorhead, Minnesota, thousands of unknown ordinary people paint a tiny, insignificant tile. But six months later, the result is a spectacularly beautiful masterpiece. That's the church. We're all participating in creating God's wonderful masterpiece of which we are a part. May we at Bible Baptist Church recognize the importance that each of us play in God's work.